Hello and welcome to the Analytics FC podcast. I'm John McKenzie, Head of Content, and this week I spoke to Oliver Seitz, Business Intelligence Director of United World. During his career, Oliver has worked with agents and clubs, he's completed a PhD and lectured on the topic of football business, he's worked on the scouting side of the industry, with coaching staff, with ownership groups. This depth of experience led to a very insightful conversation. In our chat, we talked about the processes of implementing data strategies within a multi-club system, the importance of having a long-term approach to data, and how communication is key when working across a number of groups. Here's what Oliver had to say. Oliver, hello and thank you for coming on today. I always begin these interviews with a biographical question to help the listeners contextualize your career. So can you give us a brief overview of how you ended up in the industry and working as the business intelligent director at United World? I wanted to pursue a career in football. I think always the easiest place to go to when you're doing that and you have absolutely no connections, which was my case, was persuading an agent to take you as an intern. So that's what I did. I stayed with him for a year learn a little bit of the inner side of the industry. At the same time, I was starting my studies because I, I realized that for someone as me who wanted to work with football but had no connections whatsoever and never played football at a high level or anything like this, I've always thought that perhaps the best choice would be to specialize myself to a point where I would have attractive CV. In order to do that, I did my PhD in football business in the University of Liverpool. And that actually helped me a lot, not only to, to develop my, my understanding of the football business, but also to create my network, my connections, and that allowed me to get into a club in Brazil, in Curitiba Football Club, uh, working for the marketing department, where I stayed for three years. I moved to become the head of marketing there. We were doing quite a good job in, in increasing revenues but then I realized that we were doubling the income of the club. We were also doubling the salaries of the same players. And then I realized that my job was to make other people rich, not myself, and not adding performance value to the club. So that stuck with me. And then I decided to first get a sense of the business outside of football to understand better how football was valuable as a property for other companies. And I had this offer from a, a French multinational company to become their head of marketing. So I chose to go there. At the same time, when I moved outside of football, I realized that at this company specifically, there was a lot of data being used to leading the decisions for marketing. So that stuck with me as a great method to make better decisions. And so at the same time that I I wanted to improve my knowledge of the full cycle of football, not only of generating money, but also how to spend money in order to increase the value of the club. I was absorbing this new knowledge into data. This was early 2012. And then I stayed for a few years with this company, and then I got a call back to teach football business in London. So I went, and by the same time, was kind of when Moneyball thinking was moving into football. So it was right at the beginning of the data revolution. Data was becoming increasingly available. More data companies were being created. Even when I was in Curitiba, we were talking to data companies and prices were just so high that it was impossible to, to have any access to that. However, 
in five years, everything changed and then the data became cheaper and more available. So it allowed people to start developing bigger knowledge on it. So I jumped on that wagon because I, I wanted to understand that much, much better. So from that, I got an invitation to go to Barcelona to design the Masters in Football Business with FC Barcelona, with the Cruyff Institute. So I went there and that allowed me also to get in contact with the club and on the data analytics of the club and, and, and the sports people of the club to get us introduction to the into the world, how they were developing the methodology and also the technologies that were starting to be used. And then I stayed three years in Barcelona and then I moved back to Brazil to become head scout of Atletico Paranaense. My role was clear, was to start implementing a data-driven approach to the club. And we did that, but then the club got uh, punishment by FIFA. The club was blocked from making transfers to the professional team because of a previous transfer that was a bit confusing. And because of the block, we couldn't sign the players. So we decided that rather than do that, we would start to apply data to all the football department. And that really was, for me, it was a great, great experience because all of a sudden I was sitting down with the managers and discussing players and discussing our team, uh, making the opponent analysis, but also our performance. And, and that, that really helped me to understand the mind and the, the processes of decisions inside the coaching staff, how people think. And it was a great, great, fantastic school to me. And that was 2019. And then early 2021, I joined United World as a business intelligence director. Could you tell us a little bit about what your role as business intelligence director entails? My role is basically to support our clubs and also the holding group to make better decisions based on, on collecting, analyzing, and understanding the information that we have available and how to also develop methods to collect more information and make sense of everything that happens, not only in the football side, but also creating the bridge with the financials and et cetera. So it's, it's, it's hard. People ask me often, what do I do? Uh, it's always a, a tricky exercise because it's a little bit of everything. But yeah, that's my career in a nutshell. That's almost 20 years there. You've mentioned that you spent time working at Atletico Paranaense. How important for your development was it to work your way up through the ranks of an analytics department? Oh, it was one of the best experiences I had because football clubs generally, they, they tend to be split into two sides. You have the business side and the technical side. Each side is very protective of their dimension. There are not a lot of interactions between them. They almost tend to work uh, two different organizations. For me, it was fantastic to kind of break this wall, this barrier, and understand both sides, which now I, I think I have a pretty good understanding of everything that runs into a football club, how the financial people think, how the commercial people think, how the football people think. Of course, each club is, is different. Uh, each individual is different, but that... It was a very intensive role, almost 24 hours per day. The amount of work is, is incredible. The pressure, the amount of information that you need to collect and to process and the speed of these decisions, is, is, it's something very unique to the football club. And to understand how 
this process of organizing information, collecting data, processing and creating the insights for better decision can be used in recruitment, but also the importance there is between linking the recruitment to the development of players, to, to actually playing the players. This, I think for me, was a great school because I said that uh, you have two different clubs in the business side and in the football side, but also inside the football side, you also have different clubs because sometimes you can have walls between the recruitment and the coaching staff, depending on the club. And sometimes the communication doesn't flow and, and, and the understanding of the recruitment is different from the understanding of the coaching staff, which is different from, from the academy. But I, I had this very lucky opportunity to to sit down and, and not only talk to, but work with the head of the academy, with the coaches from the academy, but also the, the academy players, but also the professionals, staff, and obviously the recruitment and football director trying to provide the support and use data and, and analysis to provide support for each one's decision. They are very different. Each decision is very different, very unique. And they behave very differently because they are under different scenarios, different type of pressures, different circumstances. So adapting the need of data to each of these functions inside the football department was perhaps, I think, the, the, the greatest experience I could have extracted from Atletico Paranense. Paranense were extremely successful during your time there in terms of the players they identified, developed and sold. From the outside looking in, I think the story appears to be that Brazilian clubs do this through the luck of having a football-mad culture and young players who play street football all day. Do you think it is luck or has Brazil developed a sophisticated system of player development and player trading? Or do you think that the truth is maybe somewhere in the middle? I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I think there's a number of reasons why Brazil generates as many players they do, well-structured system to develop top talent because there's a lot of financial incentives for people doing so. Some people made a lot of money, some clubs made a lot of money, some agents made a lot of money, some academies made a lot of money. And this process, football is one of the pillars of Brazilian identity. So people want to be involved. So they already want to be involved. And there is a potential financial gain from this. This allows a lot of people to create projects that will develop players. I don't think it's structured from association point of view. There's no big organization into the development of Brazilian football, but all these players, because they have their own incentives to pursue, they end up structuring a system in a very efficient way because there's understanding that the career for a football player demands sacrifices from a very young age and this is in brazil the scenario allows you to make those sacrifices in order to pursue this career of course uh, brazil's uh, situation in developing players is helped in a way by the inequality because there's difficulty from young kids born in, in poor families to make this social break into to generating more money etc so there's incentive from, from these kids also and the families for them to pursue a career in football. You add this all together to the fact that Brazil has 200 million people and football is basically by far the number one sport. You have the whole system that allows the development of Brazilian players. But considering all this, perhaps we should have even more top talented players if we had a, a structure that would be a bit more organized in that sense. I'm interested in how 
data has started to play a part in that storyline of Brazilian club player trading success. Which systems in particular did you implement at Paranense on the data side to drive your success? Data in Brazil is still in early days, still a bit unstructured, and there's a number, also a number of reasons for that. Data in football is very advanced in English-speaking countries or countries that have a lot of people speaking English uh, that know English well because a lot of the data available and a lot of the knowledge available is in the English language. And Brazil is uh, not a lot of people who speak English. And that doesn't create the environment for people to keep learning, learning about data and football. So, but also Brazil is very, people are very connected to their own experiences and they like to, they feel more comfortable in doing and making and taking decisions following their, their gut instinct and from things that they know because they have been working with football for a long time. They played football in the past. And it's kind of because global Brazil doesn't interact with other countries and has a, a very big advantage position in, that in South America financially. So whenever you're playing against opponents in South America, they already have a strong squad. The value for data is not that high at this moment and also the fact that the acquiring data can be a bit expensive for brazilian clubs due to the exchange rate and everything so this hinders a little bit the progress data in brazil but uh, certainly there is a trend coming out people want to know more people that have access to it they are starting to use but still in very very early days you can see a lot of inefficiencies existing in football and, and educating people into and discussing about the use of data. It's always a very difficult discussion because you kind of have to change mindsets. But when you're able to do that, and my experience has shown that when you can present the benefits of using data in a way that relates to the, the, the needs of the people and the, and the staff and the players, they see clearly where they can gain from this. They're very, very open to this and they want to learn more. But breaking this wall, it's always a very complicated. One thing that I've seen happen with people that know a lot about data is that they are very close-minded regarding uh, the use of data. Uh, it's almost about a discussion about truths, my truth against your truth and whose truth is better. Uh, and when you do that, it will never work. So it needs to be a constructive argument from both sides. If you're bringing in data, there's a lot of things that data doesn't measure. There are a lot of things that data cannot tell you. And there are a lot of things that even whoever is analyzing the data can not answer and needs a lot of time to develop the knowledge to be able to answer some questions that people that have never used data before can answer quickly. So it's a lot about finding this common ground between the experience and also the data language. I want to turn to spend some time talking about your present occupation at United World. For those of our listeners who don't know about United World, could you just give us a brief overview of what it is? Yeah, sure. So United World, we are an investment company. We control five clubs in the world. The most famous one is Sheffield United in England. And we have Chateau in France, Berchot in Belgium. These are the three European clubs. And then we have two other clubs, one in Salila United in Dubai and Kerala United in India. So we control these clubs and we try as a United, as a holding group, to, to support their growth in the middle and long term. 
One of the most interesting facets of your job is working within a multi-club setup. Often these setups will have a hierarchy or a ladder system to facilitate player trading internally up or down uh, or some type of synergy between the clubs in terms of leveraging commercial or marketing opportunities. How did the ownership group decide which clubs to invest in at United World and how do they all fit together? So a lot of it's strategic thinking, understanding different speeds of development and making, again, strategic investments for the short term, but also the middle and long term, and balancing that with obviously the financial investment and the resources that you need to increase the value of each club. Once you do that, once you're able to identify which are the markets, first you need to have a group strategy or understanding where you want to go in the future. Once you have the strategy well-designed, then you have your clubs and you can discuss about what's the role of each club into this strategy and how they can connect to each other. Sometimes there will be a lot of synergies. Each club is very independent and they need to be very independent because each market is a different market. Each club is a different club. They are very unique. You have a common strategy of growth and you have some parts that you have a lot of synergies and you try to maximize those parts but then also there are a lot of parts that each club will do on their own and they should do it on their own it's just about finding where you can extract more value and then also finding the clubs that can add more value into this common strategy so in terms of this balance between synergy and independence how is it you try and get that balance right which strategic decisions are made at a group level and which ones are made at club level I cannot go into the specifics, but generally speaking, it would usually what you would have not, not only in United World, but also uh, any multiple ownership. I, I think they, you would do the big decisions, the, the main decisions, those would involve bigger synergies. And there's a lot of smaller decisions where the uh, independence would be prioritized. Sometimes you, you really cannot find synergies. There are no synergies, so there's no point in it going on that, on that direction. But when you have big decisions, big financial investment, uh, knowledge development, on that sense, you would look into how can you find leverages within the group. And that sometimes you, you don't find it, and that's okay. When you don't find it, you, you do it uh, independently. But often it's the case that we have been more and more, each, as each day goes by, we can find more common ground, more synergies and People get more used to seeing that in this way. And this starts to facilitate a lot of, of the decisions that we take. I think the, the area where this might be the most interesting to discuss is the area of recruitment. So in terms of player recruitment, do players get signed by a central committee or is this sort of delegated to club staff on the ground? And is there processes in place for the, the clubs to get support from that central committee, even if they are operating independently in this way? Again, this is one that I cannot go into details of exactly what we do, but I think it follows the same processes. You try to maximize the value that each club has on their own, and then whenever possible, you use the common knowledge for from other clubs to generate value to one specific club. In terms of the on-pitch identity of clubs, do you have a coherent game model being employed across your clubs in the same way that the Red Bull clubs do so that you can then have this this sort of joined up processes on the recruitment side of things? Or would you make the argument that actually creating autonomous clubs with their own diverse identities can be just as powerful an approach? Yeah, I think individuality here is a, it's a key 
questions. Not only each club has their own identity, but also each manager will have their own, the one way to do stuff. The coaching staff, personally, I don't think you can ever as a, a group try to say, this is how we're going to do this and convince everyone to do that. I don't think you're going to get a lot of results from this. Uh, really, it might harm the clubs rather than increase their performance value. What you try to do is with knowledge and with insights to support the clubs to maximize their potential. But as a group, in any group, that's the case. You are not the person that's on the pitch. You are not the person. And it's not, not even as a group. It's, it's even as a club itself. Forcing some style or methodology... It's very difficult because it needs to take in consideration a lot, a lot, a lot of things because you have players that play in one way, you have a coaching staff that, that likes to play in one way, you have a whole system of even the way you develop players, the way you train the players, the structure that you have in a club, it needs to fit in order to be able to maximize the way you play, all this needs to be aligned with the, the way that you play. But once you start to control a club that has been doing their stuff for a long time and they have all this inside uh, their own way of playing, if you want to change that and you try to change that, that will actually harm the club. It may be beneficial in a long term, but even that, you don't know, right? It's almost a wild guess that's going to work better. Because data speaking, we're very limited today to the knowledge that we have on what works and what doesn't work. So there's a lot of uncertainty. And if you try to implement something that goes against the club's nature based on something that you don't know or something that's a likelihood that it's not the truth, you're actually harming the long-term value of the club. We have this thing, this understanding that the club needs to have their vision of football and define methodology and everyone should be playing and that this comes from the top to bottom. But I'm, I'm not 100% sure we should approach this this way rather than from top to bottom. Maybe bottom to top is better in order to maximize value. Because we are assuming that on this way that the top knows exactly what needs to be done. And that's 100% not the case. So that it's a discussion on, on concepts really rather than actions themselves. My view on this is that you have to maximize the value of what you have and from that build with the clubs, together with the clubs, to increase the value uh, as time goes by. But I don't think that gospel of truth of exactly how it should be played uh, is helpful at all. Working with data is a quite specialised and often can be expensive in terms of buying data sets and hiring qualified staff to deal with the data. So how does working in a group sort of mitigate that do you have a an infrastructure that is that functions centrally that allows these clubs within your group to to access data in a in a sort of common way as a group it's not different from multinational companies or multinational groups or whatever not only football but whatever business you try to maximize resources uh, you try to maximize the value of, of platforms and tools so if you can do that you do group agreements sometimes you can't uh, so you, you do, uh, each club will do their own agreements. But you're always looking for efficiency, to increase efficiency, to increase value. This includes not only acquiring platforms or signing platforms at group level or, or at club level, but also developing knowledge. Because sometimes, I think a multinational company, 
There's some resources that you can centralize and whatever deals or whatever strategies defined within the central area. But sometimes you will allow clubs to have their own way of doing things. And you're trying to support. I think, I think the key word here is, is how can you support the growth of clubs? And sometimes you support the growth by group-wide solutions or group-wide deals or group-wide resources or, or group-wide apartments, let's say. But sometimes you support growth by giving the clubs direct insights into something that they by themselves wouldn't be able to do it because they don't have the resources to, to reach that at this point. And I guess one of the interesting aspects of working with a number of clubs is is the ownership group measuring the performances of the clubs within the group. So are there some data-led key performance indicators that you measure against? Are, are these standard metrics or have you developed some sort of predictive forecast-based metrics to help you navigate each club's path? There's some metrics that are very standard for the industry that you can measure performance. There's a lot of predictive tools available, uh, forecasting analysis that, that's widely available. Sometimes they're very good. Sometimes they're not so good, but sometimes they're very good. And you keep an eye on those and, and seeing the developments on the sense. But also you need always to develop your own ways of analyzing individual performance and collective performance, not only of players, but also of the teams, of the staff, setting your own KPIs. We have our, our own KPIs. Again, we don't enforce them. Each club is a different club. Each situation is a different situation. Each league has their own way of playing. There's, I think, a difficulty when you're thinking about group levels that it's already very complex to do this in one club, to do this in several clubs in different environments with different objectives, different staff, different resources. It's incredibly complex. But you need to have at least some indicators that you look into to be able to measure this performance because you need to measure and have an idea in order to make better decisions. Whenever I'm, I'm discussing data and, and teaching or, or talking to people, I, I like to enforce the fact that data doesn't tell you everything. It tells you only a part of the story. You need context. You know, in a way, football is a very efficient market. People know a lot. There's a lot of common knowledge into football that's actually supported by data. But sometimes data tells you a fraction of the story and then you, you need to dig further to understand the context and understand information of what's going on. And, and then the forecasts that you create, they are an indication. But again, there's a lot of work that needs to be done trying to make sense of the unstructured data available to guide you to the best decisions you can make. I guess another important aspect of your job is to communicate with owners about what's going on within the group. So how do you communicate the key information to these owners? Have you developed a digestible form of presenting information which allows you to aggregate information about the clubs in, a, in an easy way for them to understand? Yes, I think you touched a key point here. As a group, we are very concerned about our governance, how we can monitor and how we can process and how can we translate the information, again, not, not, not relating necessarily to my work here, but on the work that I did before, but also on my understanding of the work of analytics department or analytics professional in a football club is about translating information that you have to different audiences who have a completely different mindset. 
So ownership, they want to know a few things. Uh, they have their own speed. They have their own concerns. They have their own depth of information that they need. Whereas if you're talking to the technical department or technical staff, it's another different conversation. It's another different translation of information, uh, different types of decisions that needs to be done. If you are the person responsible for processing and generating these insights, you have to be able to communicate with everyone. And I think uh, my experience helped me on this and to be able to communicate in the financial language, to communicate in the commercial language, but also communicate in the football language. Because sometimes if you keep talking about financials in a football discussion, it makes no sense. At the same point, if you keep talking about football in a financial discussion, it makes no sense. So you, you have to be able to adapt and find what's the side, what's the relevant information and the relevant discussions that you want to make. Because you need to focus, think about data, you have infinite data. You have to focus and be very clear and specific on the data you're bringing in for the, whatever decision or whatever discussion you're going to have. So that's key. And then also adding to the fact that different people will have different understanding of data. So some people will want to know a lot about it. Sometimes the people, they don't want to know a lot about it. They just want your understanding. So you have to be able to provide and you have to be able to engage on these discussions. I think this is also a key trait into the, the understanding of data is that you have to be able to engage on discussions and you have to be open-minded to other inputs that are non-structured. Uh, Not only if you want to increase the value of the information that we're translating, but also if you want to increase your own knowledge about it because it's a learning process for everyone. Yeah, and following on from that, I read an article you wrote a while back, which you titled Five Things to Think About Before Starting to Use Data Analytics at Your Football Club. And it was almost a mini manifesto of sorts. But I just wanted to pick out one of the things that you highlighted as being key there. You posed a question for owners and club leaders, which was this. Can you hold your calm despite the public opinion and make the right decisions regardless of the external pressure? If you can, then data is for you. If you can't, why bother? I'm just interested to know what you meant by that. Can you expand your thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, sure. I wrote this quite a uh, few years ago, and, and I have reflected a lot on, on that. And I think it touches a key point, and it became clearer to me as time passed that one of the main discussions about data, it involves the law of large numbers and having the, the sample size to be able to make the decisions. For short-term decisions, for short-term thinking, Data can be very dangerous if you don't have a sample size, because you can see if you don't have sampling, you can find new messes all the time, every day, every analysis. If you look into five games, 10 games, you can find players that are much, much better than Messi, Ronaldo, and whoever. But then if you give time, you see that these players will eventually regress to the mean. And finding the mean is perhaps the most difficult job in football because Football's behavior tends to be very, very short-term. We are talking about three games, five games. They change everything. And three and five games in a sample size when you're analyzing data, it's almost nothing. If you're using numbers to drive decisions, if you're using data to drive decisions, it's very hard to do that in three matches, in five matches, because football is incredibly complex. 
when you're analyzing data because the main metric, uh, which is goals, it's not only a very unpredictable, uh, very random, but also they are very rare. Even things that enact goals, shots, they are also rare. You have of the 2,000, 2,500, 5,000 events, depends on whoever you ask, considering uh, you have on average 20 shots per match. It's not a lot. So if you think about 10 men, even 10 matches, you're going to have 50,000 events happening for 200 shots. It's not a lot. And when you don't have a lot of events happening in a big data set, and considering the nature of football, that a shot is created by a limited set of pre-events, there is a lot of uncertainty, a lot of randomness involved. And also on the sample of the analysis, there are a lot of variables because you have players that are got injured, the team played in a different way, under different conditions, and especially against different opponents. So considering all of this, it's very difficult to use data to make short-term decisions in football. If you want to use data, and if you want to have a data approach to a football club, this needs to be long-term. And when you're thinking about long-term analysis, Sometimes you cannot see to pressure. You cannot make harsh decisions based on short-term anomalies. That's the tricky part of using data in football. It's this ongoing discussion if one season is one season enough. But one season changes everything in football. Uh, you have relegation, you have promotion. You know, the next season, no one can predict what will happen next season scenario because there are multiple scenarios. And to use data into this, it's very difficult. Also because not only football is a short-term event, but also the audience and the fans and the media and, and the, everyone is hooked into this short-term philosophy of football, let's say, because that's what makes us passionate about football. It's, it's about the unpredictability of it, the buzz of the game. You know, the, you're never certain what's going to happen. You're always expecting for the best scenario, and it can happen. I think that's what I meant. It's, uh, in the end, it's about if you want to use data, you need to be long-term. Data for short-term can justify some very bad decisions. It can create alternative realities, in fact, because they will not represent the mean because the volatility of football is too high. And if you start to see data to justify short-term decisions, data can actually be harmful for you. One final question then. Do you think we'll see more multi-club, multi-club models emerging in football in the future? And how do you think this will change the way the analytics industry functions? Yes, I think if there's no change in, in regulations, and I don't see why there would be, because I don't think how it can be harmful. I think it's only beneficial to have multi-club ownership because from a business point of view, strategic point of view, that thing about the short term is something that you can mitigate. Football is a risky business, financially speaking. So a multi-club ownership, you mitigate a lot of risks. And I think as money is becoming uh, higher and stakes are becoming higher in football and the ownership is changing, it makes sense to have multi-clubs and to generate value from that. So I, I do think it's something that's going to keep growing and I can only see upsides to it. Obviously, you always have downside if you don't have a good group or a good ownership, but then this would be applied to single ownership as well. Well, Oliver, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, my pleasure, John. It was a great honor to be invited, and I hope uh, everyone enjoys the content. 
So that was Oliver Seitz, Business Intelligence Director of United World. We'll be back next month with another interesting guest, but until then, make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it, and check out all the content that is going out from Analytics FC on our Twitter account, at Analytics FC. Goodbye.